Although Pascal stated that all of man's problems come from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone, according to a Department of Labor report on job retraining, 21% of American women are training to be yoga instructors, marking the highest level of female interest in the flexibility and spirituality expansion industry since 1971. One particular indicator is striking. All but 32 women in New York and San Francisco are now certified yoga instructors, specializing in either Hatha, Bikram, or Ashtanga yoga. Yes, Doug, but we built this citus on rock and roll. In fact, more ancient than the earliest records of civilization are the legends, the legends of great warriors, knights, and wizards, and mysterious monks who could perform wondrous deeds of course, in these fabulous beings was embodied the essence of good and evil. They had the power to fly and to defeat whole armies. These stories persisted until recently when a new legend was born. Wait, are you quoting the Bruce Lee documentary at us, Will? Yes, I am. Hello and welcome to Supernormal July. I'm William Morgan and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the lightning flash, the 7th day of July, 2015, and this is our 192nd broadcast. We are excited all this month to explore the extraordinary and to consider whether supernormal mental powers such as telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition are actually inherent and can be unleashed is it really possible to perceive another person's thoughts and intentions, influence objects with their mind, and vision future events? And is it possible that some of the superpowers described in ancient legends, science fiction, and comic books are actually real and potentially waiting for us behind the scenes? We aim to find out, and we'll, we'll begin this month's quest this evening in a yoga studio. And our instructor tonight will be Dr. Dean Radin, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and best-selling author of The Conscious Universe and Entangled Minds. Most recently, Radin presents persuasive new experimental evidence for the existence of these extraordinary psychic abilities and phenomena in his latest book, Supernormal, winner of the 2014 Silver Nautilus Book Award. In Supernormal, Radin takes us on a thrilling scientific journey and challenges outdated assumptions that these abilities are mere superstition. Focusing on Patan... Oh, I said it earlier. <laughs> uh, Patanjali's Mysterious Yoga Sutras to the 2,000-year-old meditation practices book... Oh, there my dog went. Focus... <laughs> here we go, here we go. Focusing on Pantan... Charlie. Focusing on Patanjali... <laughs> you see, uh, sometimes the, uh, the the dog can reincarnate, and if you're not saying the, the, the name correctly, they get disturbed. Oh, so that's a yoga master who's really pissed off at you. <laughs> that's the confirmation. <laughs> oh, you have to leave all of this. Raiden offers powerful evidence confirming that sometimes fact is much stranger, spookier, and more wonderful than the weirdest fiction. More information about him and this work can be found at his website, deanraden.com. It, it's really an honor uh, to host him 
here this evening. Welcome, Dr. Raiden, and how are you tonight? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Okay, so I need to thank you. Your I, your book, I think, helped me to understand a current pop song. So there's a popular singer right now, and <laughs> she has a real proclivity towards frequent amorous encounters. And it, in fact, she says she'd liked it to go on and on and on and on. But um, you mention that um, there is a neurological standpoint that uh, perhaps justifies why she's having a transcendent moment. Okay. Does, <laughs> did, <laughs> I mean, did I read into that? Um, I, I'm not getting the, uh, the pop culture reference well enough. No, they, oh, it's, it's um, her name is Tove Lo, but so I was trying to, you know, I've explained this song. I don't understand. She, she, she's singing well, which, about having re- frequent empty, just really, really empty sex. But how is it that she's getting anything uh, out of it? Why is it? Why is this a transcendent moment for her at all? Well, if she's also emptying her mind, then that would be consistent with the idea that uh, through the meditative process. Uh, you can step aside from your ego, and in so doing, it's one step in the right direction, meaning the direction that you would hope to achieve through advanced meditation. So maybe that's what she was talking about. <laughs> but then I think you even said that there's a part that parietal lobe s- separates, or not separates, it lets down, it, so I guess that's it. It lets down its guard in some fashion? It's not clear that it's related to a specific brain area. Okay. But but certainly the the act of meditation does change brain functioning and activity. Uh, it even changes the shape of the brain eventually. But I'm not sure that this is so much related to brain as it is to mind. And I'm making the distinction there because it, while it seems to be clear in the neurosciences that the brain generates the mind, there's a lot of evidence that that is actually not the case. Okay. And so then, what is the mind? That's the question. So we don't have a good answer to that yet, but some of the clues were provided by Patanjali, as you said. Uh, Patanjali was the founder of what's now called classical yoga. It was in a book that he wrote called the Yoga Sutras, roughly 2,000 years ago, which was a written, the first written form of what up to that time had been an oral tradition passed down for unknown millennia. And in that tradition, the idea is that uh, through, through calming the, uh, the mind, you, in a sense, transcend the limitations of the brain. So we think of the brain as the three pounds of tissue in your head, Uh, clearly is linked in some way to our ordinary senses. And so the neurosciences have done a very good job in showing that there's a relationship between, or in fact, a correlation between what's going on in the senses and what's going on in the brain and even going on a certain degrees of of cognition. But Patanjali said that if you calm the mind down enough, and at this point you can still imagine that we're talking about the brain – But his claim was, and this is the claim of classical yoga, if you calm down enough and you're able to dissociate enough from your ordinary senses, you will transcend the limitations of the brain and it will manifest 
in, in the form of synchronicities and enhanced intuition, psychic phenomena, mystical experiences, and so on. Uh, at the stage where someone is able to perceive beyond the reach of the ordinary senses, it becomes more and more difficult to imagine that what's going on is brain-centric, and it seems to be more mind-centric, where mind is no longer the brain. And so I, I'm a scientist, and from a scientific perspective, you go through your training, and the story I just told you would be considered nonsense, because it all looks like brain. And it only actually only looks like brain if you don't pay any attention to evidence that contradicts that, or at least challenges it. So what I tried to do in my book, Supernormal, was say, well, you've all heard these legends about uh, what the yogic masters were supposedly able to do, and what Patanjali had written about, and what happens when you do apply modern scientific methods to study some of those claims? What do you end up with? And to make a long story short, you end up with very good evidence that some of what Patanjali was talking about, the portions that we've been able to test, actually turn out to be true as far as science can show that anything is true. And so then this is a science in some part of mysticism? Well, it, mysticism is more difficult to study, uh, but certainly some of the elementary psychic experiences are not only amenable to being studied, but can and have been studied in the laboratory for a little over 100 years now, uh, using what we might think of as modern methods uh, for perhaps 40 years. And by modern methods, I'm, I'm not talking about the use of ESP cards, which were popular in the 19. 30s to 1950s, but rather the tools of physics and the tools of um, molecular biology and the tools of neuroscience. So using modern tools, applying it to these kinds of phenomena, you find in repeatable experiments that some psychic phenomena are actually true. Okay, this might take a little bit to set up to ask the right question. In Sync Book 2, there's an individual who's actually a pro athlete who wrote this excerpt called The Blur where he talks about how, say, at a certain point in time, mathematically they say human couldn't exceed a certain speed running, and yet it was actually exceeded. And the gentleman who wrote this, his name is Joe Alexander in Sync Book 2, basically uh, used it to say, you know, humans see something done and then they excel and do greater at it later. Do you know what I mean? So sure. this would... You, this certain things that are done in sports nowadays far exceed anything that was ever possible in the past. And he also drew this line between that and fiction and how, you know, on the silver screen nowadays we're seeing the, you know, the Incredible Hulk. And, and, and to, the, to the realistic uh, – uh, to a very realistic appearance, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's very convincing and he has this theory that what he calls the blur, that there will be a bending from fiction over into real life. Kind of like a Jeffrey Kripal thing, you know, and what he basically puts forth in Mutants and Mystics. So how are you, how do you see that? I mean, do you think that, like say the, the you know, ESP cards and, and Ghostbusters or whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the fiction having an effect on the actual human evolution. Oh, I think it does. The entertainment industry is basically a reflection of what's on people's minds. 
And so when you look at stories about paranormal things, it's a very major genre. Uh, stories that, are, that reflect a more realistic sense of what's going on are, of course, very rare because they'd be boring. So all of entertainment is a huge embellishment of what is, in many cases, real. And if it wasn't real, we, would, we wouldn't have a way of resonating with it. The stories wouldn't be very interesting. So what we want in fiction is something that is plausible so we can, we can connect with it, but also embellished to such an extent that it makes the story entertaining. So I think that the way that uh, Jeff writes about this topic in Mutants and Mystics and in other books is exactly right. That the way he puts it is that we're, we are writing, writing ourselves like authors uh, into, the, into reality. So then back to Patanjali and his yoga, what are the, what are the cities? Is that how you say that? Yes, that's why the song yes. uh, title Built makes it. sense. Yes, <laughs> built this city. The cities. The city is a, a Sanskrit term, which roughly translated means attainment or perfection. And what it refers to is that when you perfect the practice of meditation, you have the capacity to gain special abilities, abilities that we would look at and say that's supernormal, things like telepathy and so on. What makes the the idea of the cities interesting is that when Patanjali wrote this, uh, very few people could read, for one thing, uh, and he wasn't making it up like fiction. He was simply reporting what was an oral tradition. So that the third book in the in the Yoga Sutras actually gives prescriptions of how to produce various kinds of supernormal abilities. And again, they weren't considered supernormal by the yogis. They they were considered these are just things that happen. So among the, the 25 or so things that can happen with prescriptions and how to do it were clairvoyance and telepathy and various kinds of very strong mind-body effects and, and mind-over-matter effects as well. Uh, some of them are much stronger than anything that we ordinarily see in the real world, things like levitation uh, and the ability to transform uh, one substance into the other. Of course, we have stories about such people who can do things and stories about uh, legends of such things. Uh, but the vast majority of the cities that are described in the Yoga Sutra are variations of clairvoyance. And as it turns out that in the laboratory, clairvoyance is one of the easiest things to demonstrate. One way to see that now is just do a Google on the idea, on the, the concept of remote viewing. And you'll see millions of web pages that are devoted to this uh, modern term for what amounts to clairvoyance. And these are people who have capitalized on what was once a secret program in, in the, um, the government, which became non-secret in 1995. And a lot of people wanted to learn what the psychic spies did for the government, and it, it created a whole burgeoning field of remote viewing training. So it's – and a lot of people can do it. They can't generally do it at very high levels, but not surprisingly because there aren't too many people out there who are Olympic athletes either. It requires very high natural talent and a whole bunch of practice. So then what is – I mean so you speak about things done by individuals. You know, like what's the difference between something that's wondrous and, and like a miracle in that, in that realm of the city where it seems like – 
you know, this borders on the fictional where this is beyond human capability? Well, that's a good question. And the, the distinction is miracle versus marvel. Okay. So a miracle is similar to supernatural. The, the words, both of those words connote a divine source. And if it's divine, it means by definition it's not human source. You might be able to do it like a saint, a Catholic saint can do strange things, but it's not attributed to the person. It's attributed to a gift God. from some divine source. By comparison, I use the word supernormal in my book simply to indicate that this is a perfectly normal thing, but just enhanced, just like an Olympic athlete versus an ordinary person. And so the, the term there is a marvel. It's, it's something that's normal, it's, but it's amazing. It's marvelous. It's not supernatural. It doesn't come from a, from a divine source. So in yoga, it's very clear that when people gain the cities through advanced meditation practice, uh, that they're not getting a gift from God. They're, they're evoking an inherent capability that they already have. But again, people have natural talents. Some people will be able to evoke it much, much easier and to a higher extent than others, even, okay. if they, even if they both do the same practice. So you just hit a nerve for me. I Okay, the cities. The first time I, I was introduced to them was in this book that it actually listed some of them. They, they read off like, you know, talents of the X-Men for you know, some people can grow one is to become the size of an ant or a piece of dust one is to become huge um different stuff like that but there was a trick to it once i realized that some of these things are things that we do every day anyways it was just like another way of thinking of it like when you know they're talking about becoming really small like there's a trick to it because we are actually kind of really really small so there's like more of a thought exercise than an actual talent so this, you're you're talking about things being every day i mean in a way do you get what i'm saying where what i'm batting around there well the, the, some interpretations of the cities are in psychological terms or even in symbolic terms right uh, what i'm saying is that when you Take some of the concepts, and not all, and there may be some mixing of the different capabilities here, because we don't know that they're all exactly the same thing. But at least if you take the ones that are described as more or less vanilla clairvoyance, or relatively common telepathy, those kinds of things that a lot of people report, since those can be looked at in the laboratory, that when you, when you do look at it under controlled conditions, you find pretty good evidence that these things are real, and they're widely distributed in the population even among people who don't even know that they have these capacities, because generally they're pretty weak. If you study populations of advanced meditators, generally you find that the effects are bigger, even though they're not even trying to develop these capabilities. And if you uh, do a further sift among people who do report these capabilities and appear to have some talent, the effects are much stronger. You recorded a podcast with Dr. Kripal uh, a few years back, but you said something really fascinating on it to me. Um, you said meaning is equal to mass. And somehow that meaning creates its own attraction. And you said that in response to a synchronicity that you had. Mm. And so I, I, I'm, I think I lost my train of thought here. <laughs> 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 well, what I was I was struggling to try to explain 
which, which for me was a startling synchronicity. And many people have had synchronicities, of course. And then we struggle to say, well, how in the world did that happen? We try to calculate a probability for the event to see if it might have been a coincidence. Some synchronicities are clearly coincidence. But other ones, the probability is real close to zero. So it's not a coincidence. The synchronicity that, that I was describing, I, I would estimate, is a probability of, of very close to zero. So now you try to, to say, well, how can we understand such a thing rationally? How could this happen? So it was more by metaphor that I was saying that it is almost as though space and time and our experience of it are actually very flexible in, in the same way that Einstein was describing relativity, that these are not absolute fixed uh, elements of reality, but they're relationships. And so just as it, we, as Einstein showed that gravity can be con considered a kind of a warping of space-time, well, maybe our whole existence, including our, our sense of consciousness or the events that unfold in people's lives, maybe there are things that could warp what happens in, in somebody's life by doing the equivalent of increasing mass. So because if you increase mass in space, it warps space-time and it creates oh. what looks like a gravitational effect. It pulls things together. Wow. Well, what if, you, what if meaning were analogous to mass? And you suddenly have a huge amount of meaning that is shared between people. And the meaning could be anything as long as it's meaningful to those two people. But it's very strong. Maybe that pulls the events together. And when people finally notice that these two elements of meaning have pulled them together and they meet, to them it's experienced as a synchronicity. So they, for them, they're startled at the effect that uh, I, I have some amazing thing happening here and somebody else feels exactly the same way because they were actually pulled together in the same way that uh, space becomes warped. And then we look at it and say, oh, that's gravity. I, yeah. Okay. So we're talking <laughs> we're talking about meditators and, and what that creates, brain or whatever. Um, so I'm back to my train of thought. So people, <laughs> people working in the field of meaning – and maybe magnet thinking in, in magnetization would be another way of so it's almost like people who are working Magneta in magnetization and mass are really kind of there's some connection there right but so, so could I, you share your synchronicity it's so mind-blowing the first time i heard it i went no way Is yeah this so this this happened in uh, 2000 uh, a colleague of my uh, of mine when I was working at Interval Research in uh, Silicon Valley, um, my contract was up and we decided we were going to uh, create a nonprofit to continuing studying sci research. So this was at the rise of the, the dot-com craze. And in Silicon Valley, the prices were so high for office space that we had to go a little bit further away from, from dead center. And we ended up at a little office complex in Los Altos, which is on the outskirts on the periphery of Silicon Valley. Uh, this was uh, a complex where you would find accountants and a couple of medical people and things like that, just an ordinary, like a strip mall, but just a bunch of offices. So we decided that this one office was good. We, we moved in. We had no furniture. Uh, there was me and, and five colleagues, but I was, I was the only one who was there full time. So I'm in an empty office space. One of the first things they put in is a couple of desks and then whiteboards. 
and I chose an office that was abutting up to a wall of the the people next to us who I hadn't met yet. So I walked to work, and about a month goes by, and I decide to look at what some of the other offices are, so I walked to my office in a different way. I noticed that right next to us, our neighbor, who I'd never seen anybody in there, the, the name on the plate on the outside was SciQuest Lab, and Sci spelled P-S-I, and then the word Quest Lab. And I thought, well, that's a funny coincidence because we're doing Sci Research and they're probably Personnel Services Incorporated or something like that, except that I couldn't figure out why they would need a laboratory. So another couple of weeks goes by, I walk to the office a different way, and I, I see, oh, there's also uh, SciQuest Sci Inc. So like I'm thinking, well, this is like the business office of these people, but I don't see anybody in there either. So now I'm, I'm burning with curiosity of who are these people and what are they doing. And, and also I wanted to introduce myself to tell them about the funny coincidence. So as weeks go by, at this point, as a couple of days go by, I'm in the office and I'm sketching on my whiteboard the kind of laboratory that I want to create, the certain kind of shielded room and certain kinds of equipment inside and so on. I have this picture up on the wall. Uh, the next day, I notice uh, that there's somebody moving around in SciQuest Labs next door. So I knock on uh, on the door. The, the, a man comes over, opens the door, and looks like he's going to have a heart attack. I got kind of concerned because he started to talk and suddenly stopped and his eyes got real big. So I, not knowing exactly what to do, I said, uh, hello, my name is Dean. And before I finished, he finished with Dean Radin. And of course, now I was confused because I never met this guy before. He somehow knew who I was and was shocked clearly at seeing me and wasn't having a heart attack. He was having a major surprise. <laughs> So as it turned out, what he was doing is uh, a, a dream yoga, uh, a Tibetan practice of dream yoga in which uh, you go into an altered state and you, you try to dream while awake to manifest what you need. He was trying to manifest me. And so when he told me that, I said, well, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> he had been spending the last six weeks manifesting me roughly soon after we had moved in. And, and I said, well, why? Well, this guy is one of the original developers of the Apple PowerBook when it first came out as a, a Mac as, a, as a, uh, a laptop. And he cashed out of Apple and did what he always wanted to do, which was sci research, exactly like what we were doing. What he was the reason he wanted to pull me into existence or manifest me is because he wanted me to serve on his board of advisors and he didn't know how to get in contact with me. And neither he nor hardly anybody else knew that I was actually working and living in Silicon Valley at the time. So when I opened the door, he had just come out of this this uh, dream yoga manifesting me so and, he was at an actual session when you showed up it was yeah. like he did it you popped in he was like well there it goes you can but imagine the, the shock well, that he had and when he told me this i felt extremely disoriented because like everyone else we always walk around thinking that we have free will well right. i suddenly felt what i you know everything that i've been doing basically my entire life i always think i'm doing it because it's my choice and and we freely chose to get an office 
in this place, not having no idea at all that there was anybody else in the world who was starting an own, their own private sci laboratory. So after we got over that shock, I told him what I was doing, and I, was, I didn't have anything actually to show him in our office yet because I was still designing the lab. So he said, uh, well, can I see it? Yes. So he saw I was on my whiteboard, and his eyes bugged out again. said, well, come over and look at my lab. So I went over there, and I had basically drawn his lab on my whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> same equipment, the same kind of, of special chair in the inside, and all the little gizmos and everything that I wanted to have. And this was my turn to be shocked. Because it was really, it's, I mean, you could imagine that neither of us knew anything about who the other person was on the other side, and yet we were both kind of manifesting what we needed. So this is, an, this, this is where this notion was of, of meaning almost acts like, a, like an increase in mass. And we had, our orbits had been altered from where they would normally go, and we felt pulled together. Now, n neither me nor he, nor he felt any difference in the in ordinary decision making. So it wasn't as though I had intuitions that were kind of pulling me in one direction or the other. I just felt, well, this, you know, this decision makes sense and this one makes sense. And sometimes we didn't even have the choice of making a decision. It was just sort of foisted upon us because this was the available office. So as though the, the orbits are pulled together even in a larger sense, not just the individuals involved, but the rest of the world is somehow orbiting this strange event so okay so the thing that's just clicking like gear work inside my brain is i don't want to seem i don't want to seem egotistical but how do you how does one cash out on such a deal like isn't that the nature of magic ritual and and you know uh sigils and stuff like that are just basically to make meaning so something it like creates mass to to bring that that certain desirable to you. Yeah, it's similar to to what you would find in a lot of magical traditions. Yes. So the the there's no difference between the dream yoga really and just basically like uh, okay, this is making my brain go warp. But is I guess the question I have is there's probably no shortcut. Is that I mean so the the, the lesson of I'm yoga for shortcut. I'm is for a sh I don't think there's a shortcut because the lesson of yoga is that it it requires discipline and it requires you know a, an austere practice and you almost have to like divorce yourself from the world on some level. Yes, yeah, and and the much of this I think is fortunate because if if you t uh, pay attention to movies like uh, Forbidden Planet which is based on the idea of Shakespeare's The Tempest okay. and similar stories. If we were in a condition where it w your whims were quickly turned into reality, humanity would long be extinct. We would destroy ourselves and others very quickly because we're, we don't have enough discipline in, in terms of our understanding of our relationship to the world to be very adept at handling that kind of, that kind of ability. So it doesn't disturb me too much when we do experiments in a lab and we get real effects, but they're pretty small uh, because we, we somehow get the sense that all of us all the time are sort of pushing the world around in small, to small degrees. And there's a lot of clashing of people's wishes and wants and the clashing sort of averages everything out. So it often looks like we, we individually don't have all that much ability to have things, have our wishes come true. But under exceptional circumstances, 
where those wishes don't significantly impact others in any serious way. And these are mostly like personal synchronicities, like the one I described to you doesn't make any difference for anybody else, really. It was just shocking to us. In those cases, it can happen. But if you have a context where uh, you, you have a whole country invading another country, you have this gigantic mishmash of very strong wishes, which may very well cancel each other out, in which case we're completely back in the world, the everyday ordinary world, where this kind of manipulation of reality doesn't take place very well. Hmm. I'm also thinking about Arthur Clarke's book, Childhood's End, where it kind of has this this race of indigo children, which is like the advanced consciousness. And as it becomes, it tears apart the planet and, and just leaves. Yep. The children look at their parents and say, bye-bye. Yeah. We're, we're going now. So then uh, you you also have mentioned that human anxiety, so the flip side of this, begets failure. So you've worked in situations, in lab situations, where the people with the most anxiety, you, you tell them to stay home on presentation day because you don't want the experiment to flop in front of the board or whomever you're doing the experiment for. What What is the state of psi research these days? Well, what you're describing is, is basically Murphy's Law, which I've worked in a lot of laboratories and technical environments, and they all honor Murphy's Law. Uh, and most of it is considered a superstition, except that sometimes maybe not so. Like you really, really need something to work because you're showing something to visiting dignitaries, and that's when it won't work. And so some people are identified as jinxes, and you simply don't allow them to be present, whether it's superstition or something else, and things tend to work better. So everyone in technical environments knows this. They kind of laugh at it, but they also do it anyway. That's actually one of the reasons why I got involved in this, in this topic, because I just saw it happen so often. I figured, well, maybe there's something to it. Well, so, so I'm thinking about Thomas Kuhn and the history of scientific revolutions. And, and it seems like we're, we're in this moment where things are pretty solid, but it's ripe for a paradigm shift. Right. So some paradigm shifts are a lot slower than others. We, we tend to think things happen overnight now, like we're, you know, we want to break through. Well, well, can we have it by next Tuesday? Uh, <laughs> if you look back in the history of science, when there were major changes, really radical changes, it took a long, long time. And it is still taking a very long time because this is a kind of paradigm shift that will change civilization itself. It, in fact, it may be so major that it, it will no longer, once this becomes mainstream, the world will look very different. And so consider, for example, that in 1900, when Lord Kelvin announced to the British Royal Society that basically physics is, is pretty well set. What we understand about physics works well enough for us to say it's basically finished, except for two minor problems, which will probably mop up pretty quickly. Well, those two minor problems turned into quantum mechanics and relativity. So from 1900 through the end of the 20th century, the world radically changed. It's changed from the Industrial Revolution to the Atomic Age to the Information Age. Well, we're at the beginning of the 21st century, and it's not – we haven't reached the end of science uh, regardless of what some people think. I think we're actually approaching the beginning of science. We've learned a little bit, and we're able to do certain things – but we are so far from understanding many, many fundamentals 
that when we do get a handle on how reality actually is stuck together, it will change everything. And it's one of the reasons why the paradigms are so difficult to change or so difficult to shift because people who are in positions of power and authority don't want everything to change. In fact, their job is to maintain the status quo. So there's a lot of inertia built into the way that the engine of civilization to keep things more or less stable. And when it comes to to the economy, we see that. It comes to basically anything, politics. When it comes to ideas, it's much, much stronger. You don't change ideas. It's a lot like Fight Club. You, you, you don't talk about it. You just don't. First three rules are don't talk about this stuff. <laughs> because it's it's kind of scary you know people will sometimes ask well what is what would the future civilization look like and my response is i have no idea if you ask lord kelvin in 1900 what do you think is going to happen when we understand these two little clouds on the horizon he said he would probably say well i'm not sure that there are clouds but even if they were probably nothing it's, <laughs> it's very difficult to see beyond today <sighs> the coming grace well, I mean, so you mentioned that our brains are only able to process like one trillionth, one trillionth of the information that's available? Yes. And so is, is I mean, I don't know that reality, I mean, it's going to be our perception that changes. I mean, so we think about that a little in our world of synchronicity that we notice that um, part of what separate, so the subject-object divide we have these filters that says i'm me and you're you and i'm separate but it seems like other people have thinner filters and sometimes when and i call this psychic weather when something moves through and pushes everyone's buttons in a real similar way the people with the thinnest filters are the ones that you know they're the ones that can show this kind of whatever it is that's moving through like the flows or the magnetization or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Does, does that sound nuts? Yes. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> nuts, uh, but it might be true. You know, when you look at uh, the personality trait of schizotypy, this is this puts on, on the one hand of the spectrum, you have uh, people with very low schizotypy. They tend to be... Uh, very methodical, extremely conservative. The the world is basically the world of the senses, and that's the end of it. And the other end of the scale, schizotypy, you have schizophrenics who have a very difficult time of separating the, their own self from imaginary selves. And so somewhere closer to the, the middle of this spectrum, a little bit closer to the schizophrenic side, you have people who are highly creative. They're well-grounded. They're able to do a job and so on, but they're not as quite tightly bound to the senses. They're much more into the imagination world. Well, that's the where that's where a lot of psychics live as well. There, if they were too much close to the schizophrenic side, they'd end up being psychotic because they can no longer tell the difference between themselves and others. If you're too much on the highly conservative side, you would think that psychic phenomena are crazy. Because it's so far outside your own experience that you just don't even know how to think about it. So I think, in some respects, that the uh, we, we the the range of ways that people can can be requires this spectrum, because uh, an entire world of super conservative, highly skeptical types, we would still be in covered wagons. 
you, you need people on the other end of the scale in order to imagine other possibilities and actually play with it, play with those other possibilities. So you need this wide spectrum. And among other things, it suggests that uh, there's th this struggle between uh, people who have experiences and those who deny it. It's not going to go away because it's probably healthy from a, uh, a species perspective. Well, I really enjoyed Supernormal. I'm wondering, but it did come out in 2013. I'm wondering, have you been working on anything else, and or what are you doing in the lab these days? Well, yes, I'm I'm working on uh, a synopsis for another book. Uh, this book will be, I don't know what the title is yet, but it'll be a book about uh, how to develop psychic ability uh, and whether you whether that's actually a good idea or not. Uh, so the bottom line is that are there ways to become more psychic? Yes. Is it a good idea? And I would say for most people, no, it's not. <laughs> and we didn't even ask about what do you think about ayahuasca in, in respect to that? So, well, the same answer. For, for some people who are particularly stable and, and not prone to addiction, why not? You know, Open the doors of perception, you'll see the world in a new way. For people who are prone to addiction and people who are not very stable to begin with, it's very bad news. So when you look at the spectrum of uh, the way that people handle those sorts of door-opening experiences, if you're an amateur and you take it lightly, extremely dangerous. If you're serious about it and you get the right kind of guidance and all the rest, it's life-changing. Hmm. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. That was 42 minutes? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a lot of dog barking and stuff yeah, like that. <laughs> but if you, okay. if you would like, we, we, we can continue our talk just uh, as soon as we wrap up with our outro. We can continue to uh, chit-chat for a little bit longer if you're okay with that. Yeah. Wonderful. To all of our listeners, you've been listening to Dean Radin on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the work of Dr. Radin can be found at deanradin.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archives, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And the whole history of science shows us that whenever the educated and scientific men of any age have denied the facts of other investigators on a priori grounds of absurdity or impossibility, the deniers have always been wrong. <laughs>